0: Well good morning, um, I'm gonna ask you to give me some help here. I don't know whether we need to use this this system or not. So I'm gonna talk to you like this without it for a moment and then I'm gonna turn it on and ask you, does that, does that make it better? Okay. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping things before we get started. Uh, there are some stairs just go down around the side of the curves of the outside of this auditorium and uh, downstairs in the basement floor there's a wall that has some lockers on it and a Pepsi machine. Just to the left of the Pepsi machine is the woman's washroom. And to the right of the lockers is a men's washroom. I mean, if you need to take advantage of those facilities at any time, please feel free to get up and walk out and do so. Don't say really you have to sit here in agony so until the end of the Sometimes, you know, uh, our body doesn't always uh, cooperate with what we would like it to do in terms of our head, so please feel free about that. Secondly, uh, much of what we are going to try to share with you this week in five days i was presented under a different title many years ago at texas bible school when i uh, was privileged to be there and share a series of lessons under the title six days with the master this is not. A, a repeat of that series but a great deal of the material that we'll look at was taken from that. So if you were there and you heard that and you want to get up and leave and you go hear something new, please feel free to do so. Well, Yeah? yeah. Um, i just ask me if I could, and I'm going to do this right up front now, and then we'll do thing at the same at the end of the uh, class, but is there anybody here who needs a ride at the end of this class to go over to, to the other building, um, And we will need to do that? That just helps him, you know, to figure out his logistics. Okay, um, this morning, what we would like to do is try to begin by stretching your mind a little bit. I know that's not easy for any of us, first thing in the morning. But, um, I would ask you to try to imagine things that we really cannot grasp because we want to set a scene we want to set before we actually get into looking at some samples from the ministry of Jesus and this may take most of this this first period we want to set a framework for us to look at this and the framework is going to be with respect to the purpose of God so for the first uh, 15 minutes probably I'm going to want to talk to you about some things that I put on this board yesterday afternoon just to try to save us a bit of time. The first thing, and I'm going to have to step away from this microphone so I'm just going to speak louder. The first thing I want to look at is this green line. And that's where you got to stretch your, your mind. We don't see time the way God sees it. He sees past, present, future all together. He sees it somewhat, I guess, if we try to model it. You know, with this infinity sign, if you know what amoebas curve is, uh, uh remember a of curves. It's a piece that comes back on itself, and, and one side joins the other. If, if you take a, just a strip of um, tape and twist it and then join it, it it's continuous. And it's just maybe the simplest thing we can, you know, generate as a model of what infinity might be. But for God, time is like that. For us, it's one-dimensional. Time either we go through it or it goes past us in one dimension only and we see it in a linear form and it's the original non-renewable resource us in this life that's why we're exhorted by the scriptures to, to redeem the time imagine this is eternal time, this green line here and it's eternal time with respect to the purpose of God at a particular time in this infinity and Isaiah 12 tells us that he dwells in eternity at a particular time he saw fit to create this personal creation of which he and I are personally a part. And he reformed a chaotic world in terms of this planet and gave us this creation that we see in Genesis in the opening chapters. And of that we have one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture that at the end of all of that creation it was very good surely that's a, a significant understatement it must have been absolutely, unbelievably wonderful that God describes it uh, through Moses as being very good we know the story, but sin entered. There was there were some pretty simple rules it wasn't rocket science, you know Don't eat of this particular tree the tree of knowledge is good and evil if you do, you're going to die and unfortunately Our first parents weren't able to sustain that obligation, and and they they did in fact eat it. Sin entered the world, and inevitably death had to follow. And what was a very good creation became a sick world, sick of sin, and marked by pain, sorrow, and death. And for. 6,000 years that has been our lot as human beings living on this planet to be under the curse of Adamic condemnation under the curse of death and mortality in Genesis 3.15 we read I'm going to go to 3.14 to begin the Lord God said unto the serpent because thou hast done this thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field and upon thy belly shalt thou go and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it that is her seed shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel and it was his first declaration of the gospel of salvation in the most distinct terms possible that what had happened here would not prevail it would only for a period of time that God is absolutely declaring war against Amalek war against sin and he's indicated that the day will come when the serpent and sin and death and all that that comprehends will be annihilated by the seed of the woman and we know through the promises that he made unto Abraham and the endorsement of those to David and the Apostle Paul under the spirit interpretation of those things that the seed promised was not only multitudinous but in a very, very specific sense was singular to Christ to Jesus born of Mary by the Holy Spirit of God and that that seed i.e. the only begotten Son of God would be the one who would conquer sin and death in this world And what we have up here is an attempt to try to model something about time with respect to that war and how the ministry of Jesus fits into it and what that meant for him. So let's just look at it. This is 4,000 years before Christ. 3,000, 2,000, 1,000 and we're looking at the flood we're looking at Abraham we're looking at Moses we're looking at David and then we're looking at Jesus and all of this was sequential because history is going somewhere God has a purpose there's a genome to all of this There's an end and a conclusion and 1,000 years after Christ 2,000 years after Christ And here we are in 2006, and we're spinning right up here. And we're in anticipation that we're on the threshold of a thousand years of healing of this sick world of sin, pain, sorrow, and mortality. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, you cannot escape the focus on time and the crucial nature of time the world was in anticipation we are told about this birth Israel was aware those who were at least spiritual of the prophecies of old they were aware of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks and they were in anticipation that Messiah would be born In this period, and we see Anna and Simeon as examples of that. And we have the record in the gospel, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially Luke, of the precision in time of the coming of Jesus and of his birth during the reign of Caesar Augustus and going to Bethlehem for the sins and his birth in Bethlehem the city of David and we have in the gospel record at the beginning a very very short and not really very explicit statement about his early years but we know at the birth of Jesus God stopped it to lighten up the heavens in Judea with not one but a host of his angels and a host could be any great number. This was the long-awaited promised seed of the woman. This was the one of whom Isaiah prophesied that he would come. This is the one that so many of the prophets had prophesied. This was the one that was, was foreshadowed in the life and service of Moses. And finally the day had come when he was born. And, you know, we read those words in Luke so so glibly sometimes, and we just take this, you know, the quote unquote Christian story. But think about that for a minute. When else in all of creation had God saw fit to reveal to men such a glorious sight as the heavens filled with a heavenly host See praised to God and glory to God in the highest never in God's sight this was the most single important event that had happened which Adam was created his son was born born of a woman with all that that meant and his life by the grace of God lasted only in this mortality in this flesh from 33 and a half years Luke tells us that he being about 30 began his ministry and the best we can tell it appears the ministry was certainly no less than two and a half years and, and I think The burden of proof seems to be very clearly that it was three and a half years. And by God's mercy, it wasn't any longer than that. Well, if we take this point at about age 30, as Luke says, as the beginning of his ministry, we've got three and a half years in which we've enlarged again. And we want to look at some samples out of that three and a half years. But we want to look at it through the eyeglasses or the spectacles of God at war against sin. Because that's why His Son was born to fight that war and to bruise the head of the serpent and to win that war in his own flesh so what we hope to do after talking about some sort of other general principles in a few minutes we hope to look at the beginning of his, this ministry the time of the coming of John the Baptist which we began very specific and precise in time the time of Jesus' baptism in Jordan his trial having received the spirit without measure as John says. His trial was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness The beginning of his ministry after his baptism and after that trial was the cleansing of the temple which was a very, very, very deliberate absolutely necessary conscious opening signal It's was shot across the bows, as it were to the former religious community of the day but the Messiah has come. And the message from Isaiah 61, the first part of the first verse, of you know, bringing the message of, of the still small, quiet voice of God that I Elijah heard in horror to Israel. The message of redemption. The signs of the temple, there's a period relatively short and we don't have a map here, but down in the south, in the area of Judea, to the to the uh, west of Jerusalem and to the west of the Dead Sea. There's a short period of his, his working and, and preaching and having his ministry there. Maybe only six to eight months at the most. His early Judean ministry. And then John, having been taken by Herod was cast into prison. And that becomes a watershed in the chronology of the ministry of Jesus because after that John was cast into prison, Jesus made the deliberate, conscious decision to not stay in Judea. And thus he begins his Galilean ministry which occupies probably two years at least, maybe even more. And there are two phases to that ministry. The first was, the so-called synagogue ministry, where he went from synagogue to synagogue, preaching the good tidings of the kingdom of God and the things of the fulfillment of the promises. After a particular period of time, for reasons that we'll look at later, he changes the scene for most of his ministerial work in Galilee to the countryside, and it's when he's in the countryside that we see the feeding of the we see the Sermon on the Mount we see so many of those other um, wonderful things in the in the Gospel I put Korea and Judea here Korea was the area in the south across from the Jordan in Gilead station and also in the Jordan Valley in the latter eight months, perhaps, of his ministry, Jesus worked in that area, and also in Judea in the very latter part, the last few months of his ministry. I want you to turn to Luke nine fifty-one. Now, this gives us a sample of this concern for time and it has a lot to tell us about what the frame of mind was that Jesus had in this entire three and a half years and it came to pass when the time would come that he should be seized up he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew without any shadow of doubt, no equivocation whatsoever, that the time was rapidly approaching when he would have to submit his life to the hands of the wicked and hypocritical generation and all that's faced in there. We'll look at this a little later on but it's a great example of the fact that this didn't just happen, it didn't just kind of unravel and come to a conclusion kind of by accident. Jesus knew absolutely clearly before he ever began his ministry what lay ahead of him and I say again by the grace of God it was no more than three and a half years and I think we'll see why it was that way Like to talk well we we didn't quite finish up there. In those last six months, because that's about what the time was left after Luke nine fifty one in those last six months the confrontation that we will see was there from the very beginning between himself and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the, even the service of Herod, the Herodians those confrontations continued and intensified and intensified and intensified He deliberately again sent to the temple before his second baptism which was the baptism that he had to go through of which he said oh how am I certain by this baptism that I have to be baptized for and of course it was a baptism of death that was required of him as one of us I'd like to ask you to turn now to the letter to the Hebrews The title, as we said yesterday, is taken from that wonderful book. And there are just a few things that we'd like to speak of and draw to your attention. And There's no place better to start than the first verse. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners, in times past unto the Father by the prophet, Half in these last days and it was the last days before the destruction of the temple of the Jerusalem and the, the destruction of of the Jewish people under the Romans out of the land that was promised to them Half in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the world who being the brightness of his glory he's describing Jesus and the express image of his person upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and he's talking here about what happened after his death, burial, and resurrection that his role has now become to be a priest for us to be a mediator for us with the power of an endless life has had, in figure at least, now to today we look forward, just to finish off this timeline to his return any day, literally and to the beginning of this thousand year reign when as James indicated in his talk last night there will be a healing of the nation leaves of the trees have formed the healing mechanism both figuratively and literally at the end of that thousand years we are told in 15 Corinthians that the last enemy that will be destroyed will be death and then the son will deliver up unto the father the kingdom and become its most perfect subject to the father death will be followed up in victory God will again be all in all, because He's not all in all in this world, the sick from dying world of sin. And His pleasure, for which creation was made, you read the last verse of the fourth chapter of the Revelation, and we're told very clearly, all things were made for His pleasure. And we're told by Jesus Himself, James, three and a half years here, it's turn on those and the good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And ultimately, we're looking for, after this last thousand-year day, the time when the glory of God will fill the earth with the waters cover the sea. And God will be all in all. And He won't be thwarted. And we rejoice in that. His pleasure will be realized. And if by the grace of God, we are blessed to be part of that new order, To live eternally with him. As Brother Ted Evans said in his prayer this morning, we only dimly grasp these things. Talk about seeing through a glass darkly. We have at our very best, we can't really conceive of what that's going to be. Well, we want you to keep that that paradigm, because this will probably come off tomorrow in mind that from here to here in these three and a half years Jesus understood without any equivocation what his destiny what his responsibility what his job was and it was to obey his father without fail and the fight that he fought was in here, and was in his flesh. Years ago, I had to charge it off the pleasure of hearing Dr. Harry Tierney to talk about this. And he made the point that. In this day and age and it's understandable. I mean we're excited about what's happening in Lebanon and surely we should be. And we're looking forward to, you know, fulfillment of prophecy. And how how is how is it gonna work out with respect to the nations round about? With respect to those, you know, in Lebanon and in Syria and the 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 Ishmaelites. How is it gonna work out with respect to, to dog and dogging host and all of that? That has been you know at the core of what we believe for all these, these years, since John Thomas made it so explicit for us. Praise be to God for that. And we get caught up sometimes talking about the battles that are going to come in the near future. And, you know, where are we in relation to that? And we think about those battles. We read, you know, your prophecy. We read Zechariah, and we spent a lot of time on that, and that's good. I'm not negating that for a minute. But the point that Brother Harry Kenneth made years ago that so impressed me was those battles pale into insignificance compared to what happened here inside the mind and heart of Jesus. Those battles pale into insignificance because. He's won the battle. He is the first fruit of the new creation. He has the power of an endless life. He has the power of the universe at his hand. And those who are with him will be blessed to be part of all of that. Okay, so what are the armies of men? Nothing. But in his life, in his in all his life but in particular the stresses and the challenges over three and a half years the battle was there every single minute and it was the battle of Genesis 3.15 against sin and where sin resides in his own backyard right here in the flesh in the mind and not once not for a moment did he ever give place to that And so I would ask you to stretch your minds as it were and to think of those three and a half years as God's war against sin in his purpose focused in his son that it might be one in his son. It was one. And that's why we're here. Let's go to Hebrews again. We're told that God, who had thundry times and diarous man, spake in times past, unto the Father by the Prophet. Half in these last days spoken on us by His Son. I'm going to ask you to make that these last days of Gentile times. This is such a marvelous book because it's so sequential and it's so logical and it's so tied together. You know, there's a proposition and then a conclusion. That's the conclusion for the first chapter. i go to the first verse of the next chapter. If God has spoken unto us in a special way in the ministry of His Son as we look at His ministry, in the Gospel, and it's the Son of God, not just any prophet but the Son of God who is speaking to us in this study what should we do? therefore for given that circumstance of such a privilege of having God's Son speak to us through his words in the gospel, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which he has heard, lest at any time you let them slip. Later on, that same message is repeated several times in this letter to the Hebrews. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. There's another phrase about listening to Jesus. let's look at the second chapter verse 9 we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with honor with glory and honor that he by the grace of God by the grace of God to us that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man the word taste is an unfortunate translation the original means experience filling I mean when he was dead, he was dead there's no question that he died in the fullest sense of the word for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete how? through suffering it became God it was his will it was appropriate it was necessary It was inescapable, given that Jesus shared this nature with us. It became Him in bringing many sons unto glory, and we hope that that includes us by the grace of God. It became Him to make the captain, i.e., our Lord, within Jesus the Christ. The captain of our salvation, complete or perfect, through sufferings. It could not be avoided. Verse 14, this really, really important verse that has within it a four times emphasis. For so as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, speaking of Jesus, he. And he could have stopped right there. Could have been just, he took part of the same. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says, he also took part of the same. It doesn't just say that either, does it? It says, he also himself took part of the same. But it doesn't stop there either, does it? He also himself likewise took part of the same. That's your death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil that he might win this crucial battle in the war against sin Which had to take place before any of the other battles that we look forward to not you know in a negative way but in a Way of looking forward to the things that follow the battle, namely the coming of the kingdom. Before so any of that could happen, this had to happen first. That through death he might destroy him that had to power of death, that is the devil. Verse 10 For so verily he took not him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. This is the promised seed from Genesis 22, who will possess the gate of his enemies. This morning Nathan talked about the gate of an ancient walled city. That's where the seat of government was. If you possessed the gate of your enemy, you had conquered him. It means just that, you had won the battle because you were in control. In more modern day parlance, if you took the capital of the country I mean if there was a war taking place on this continent and some enemy um, took over Washington D.C. that's symbolic of having conquered the, the country if you, if you had subject to you all of the civil service of the United States and all that that would mean so he possessed the gate of his enemies as prophesied in the promises of Abraham. wherefore in all things and you can't underestimate that that word all don't say in some things or in most things or in selective things in all things it behooves him to be made like unto his brethren and he asked the question, why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for so that and this is the explanation, in that he himself has suffered being tempted the tried, he is and I'm going to insert this word therefore able to succor them who are tried or tempted whatever went on in his mind during his entire life but in particular um, encapsulated and emphasized and crystallized and focused in those forty days the forty nights in the wilderness with the wild beasts during his temptation. And we can't I, I don't think we can we can't imagine what that was like. But whatever that was, it took place in the Son of God who had the same temptations and the same potential weaknesses as everybody in this room. You know that law of sin and death in our members of which the Apostle Paul agonizes in the Seventh of Romans and, and says, wretched man that I am, we shall deliver you from the body of his death. Our Lord Jesus had that same law in his members. And there isn't a trial, there isn't a tribulation, there isn't a fear, there isn't a doubt. There isn't a weakness that any of us can have that he doesn't understand and know that is isn't you. And because of that, he is able to succor those who are tempted. All of that is God at work against sin. All of that is part and parcel of what was stated so briefly in Genesis 3.15 and it's by the grace of God that we have a Lord who knows our weakness who's been there and is there at the right hand of God to advocate for us and therefore the writer to the uh, Ephesians to the Hebrews goes on to say Therefore, holy brothers, verse one Hebrews three, partakers of the heavenly calling. That's us. Are they based on time? Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him that appointed him, that is to his father, as also Moses was faithful in all his hosts. Verse fourteen of the fourth chapter. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all, all. All, 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 points tempered like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace with confidence. Boldly means to come with confidence. It doesn't mean to come arrogantly, it means to come with confidence, humility. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 8 of chapter 5, once more, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made complete or perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. If you go for a moment to the first chapter of Ephesians put a finger in that go to the first chapter of Second Timothy put a finger in that and just probably a page over in your Bible go to the first chapter of Titus I want you to look up here for a minute I want you to look over here for the left over here before this. Somewhere back there in eternal time. Let's start with Ephesians, verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Fear not little thought that is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom the of the truth which is after is, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began we're so tight on time we'll just leave it at that the point is that God in his mercy has seen sin to include us in his purpose before any of this started. What we hope to do, and we've got five minutes here, what we hope to do with respect to beginning to look at the ministry of uh, Jesus tomorrow is to um, just emphasize one other Principle, two other principal points here. First thing is, if you would go to the 18th chapter of Ezekiel, this is a chapter where God talks about justice. This is a chapter where He talks about His heart. It has to do with responsibility with regard to our behavior and the problem of sin, verse nine, speaking of the man that executes true judgment, last phrase of verse eight, the man that has walked in his statutes, and kept his judgments to deal truly, he is just; he shall surely live, says the Lord. Verse 20 The soul that sinneth it shall die. Verse 23 Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God? This is a rhetorical question. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Verse 30 he says, Therefore I judge you, O House of Israel, every one according to his ways, on an individual basis. This I judge you, house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent, turn yourself from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from me all your transgressions, and it's the call to repentance that Jesus made to Israel. So why should will you die, house of Israel, is the closing question in verse 31. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. The rhetorical question in verse 21 is, Does God have any pleasure that the wicked should die? he has no pleasure at all in death this was to be his kingdom of life and joy and justice and goodness and it became the kingdom of sin and death and that's not God's pleasure and his purpose is to take out of this this people this uh, creation Smitten by sin and death, a people to bear His name. Now I think we've just about exhausted our time. At least by this clock, um, I want to direct your attention to, to three saints If so you could turn, and we're just going to read these, these scriptures, and we'll talk about them tomorrow. You could turn to Genesis 18. There is a great compliment that God gives his friend Abraham that reflects God's expectations of his creatures from Eden to Eden. He is without variableness or shadow of change in these expectations. And they are in summary form here in three, four scriptures. Genesis 18-19 Speaking of his respect for Abraham, he says, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord, and what does that mean? To do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of. He had confidence that Abraham would teach his children the absolute, salient, critical, requirement to live by justice and judgment. In the tenth chapter of Deuteronomy, Moses speaking to Israel before they crossed over into the new land, says in verse twelve, Now Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, which was was said of Abraham, to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul to keep the commandments of the Lord in the statutes which I command thee this day. In those very familiar summary words by the prophet Micah. What does the Lord require of thee? We show thee a man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly? to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God and that's from Micah 6 verse 8 Jesus in the 23rd chapter of Matthew thousands of years after those words spoken by God of Abraham hundreds of years after the words that we just read in Micah. On behalf of the Father, and he said, You know, the words I speak, they are the words of the Father. You know, the words I speak was given me to speak. Not as a puppet, but as, as one who fulfilled fully his Father's will. In the 23rd chapter of Matthew, in the list of woes against the scribes and Pharisees in the last days of his mortal life. Jesus indicts them in the 23rd verse with these words, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithes of mint and anise in common, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. And what are they? Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have to done, and not to leave the other undone. The point is, that's what God has expected of His creation from the beginning. If we rebel against that, if we do not live lives of mercy and judgment and justice, If we do not help teach our children that morality, we then become like the scribes and Pharisees. And the only description that fits us is that we have hardened our hearts. Tomorrow we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about those who hardened their hearts.